practicing the monastic life, living the monastic life. We're training ourselves in the way of mindfulness. encouragement from the Buddha and all our teachers is always to establish mindfulness, bring up effort to establish mindfulness, awareness, understanding, and then to reflect on the way things are, develop wisdom, insight. insight into the Four Noble Truths, insight into suffering, its cause, and the way to end suffering. But as we practice, we're getting used to our own particular karma, our own character, habits, strengths and weaknesses. Everybody is different. So we have to accept that when we come into the monastery and apply ourselves to the training. Although we can learn much from other members of the community around us, we get strength from other practitioners, good example, support, good atmosphere. But we also have to learn to practice for ourselves and understand our own particular karmic attachments. because we're all a little bit different. But the qualities we bring up, many of them are the same. We're bringing up mindfulness of our precepts, our sila, putting effort into abandoning unwholesome states of mind, and developing wholesome states of mind, practicing right action, right speech, reflecting on Dhamma, bringing up mindfulness. And we hear these terms over and over again. So the same terms, the same qualities we all use, we all use the same tools of the practice but our experience will be a little bit different. 
and how we apply the tools will be different. Ajahn Chah said you can't always uh, expect to practice or do things exactly the same as the monk who sits next to you. That monk might have a whole different character, strengths and weaknesses. But you can have the same faith and sincerity as the bhikkhu next to you. And you can apply yourself wholeheartedly to the practice and build on your strengths and your good qualities and learn to abandon your weaknesses or your negative qualities. He said if somebody has a lot of faith then it's easy for them to practice and it's straightforward. Straightforward to teach that person. So it's like a cow. You take a cow to a field of grass. You don't have to tell it what to do. It just does it. It just eats. Somebody with strong faith is like that. They go off. And they follow the routine without a lot of fuss and questioning. They follow the routine, they apply themselves to sitting, walking, meditation. They keep the rules, they do the chores and so on. Other people have more obstacles, more karmic obstacles. They're more skeptical or more doubtful, more stubborn. not such a straightforward thing to go off and practice. They maybe have to hear more teachings, think about it more, have more explanation, get more information. They might have to push themselves a bit more. Some people just find it very difficult from the word go to practice. He said, if you take that animal to the field and it doesn't eat the grass, then it's not a cow, it's a pig. It's as simple as that. Not everybody is the same. Pigs don't eat grass. Not everybody has faith, so some people need to work more, work harder to bring up their motivation in the practice. On a more refined level, some people are more skilled in the use of wisdom, reflection. They, le they learn how to apply the teachings, think about the teachings, understand them and apply them to their own experience. Other people just apply themselves to a single meditation object and just work very hard to bring up mindfulness. Some people are very energetic. Some people find their body is a drawback. They have illness or they just feel weak or lacking energy. 
but we all have areas where we can excel. Ajahn Chah used to say, well, learn to see what you can excel in or become foremost in. You know, like in the time of the Buddha, all the leading arahants, the 80 Asiti Sawakas, they had their own particular character and they excelled in different ways in understanding the Dhamma or teaching the Dhamma or in the psychic powers or in the Vinaya, or in living very simply, or in the practice of the Brahma-viharas and so on. We have to learn, and we can use our own strengths and character traits to our advantage. See where we can excel. It doesn't even have to be in a certain, or in the traditional way, Ajahn Chah used to talk about one monk who excelled in dusting the Buddha statue, foremost duster. It's not simply a matter of your what you know or how you've been trained in the world. It's also a matter of how you learn to use your mind to apply it to what you're doing in, in the monastic life to apply yourself to learning the Vinaya training, learning the rules of training, different aspects of it. Not just the Patimoka, but we learn the different watas, different practices to do towards the teacher, towards the dwellings, towards visiting bhikkhus and so on. If you read the Vinaya, then there's many, many aspects of the Vinaya that go beyond just the Patimoka. Very refined teaching and training how to train a human mind to recognize Kilesa and use training rules and practices to expose and then curb or restrain Kilesa and provide a foundation for actually abandoning Kalesa. Many, many minor rules which just pointing to different aspects of our life, you know, how to behave in the eating hall, how to behave in the toilet, how to behave out in the open, how to behave with our robes, with our possessions, our kutis and so on. more than a human being probably would be able to remember but when you read and learn it resonates it's about the practice of mindfulness and excelling maybe in just learning to be mindful of our behavior and become aware of the intentions behind our behavior so we could excel in learning the rules of training Excel in looking after our robes or looking after our kuti, our sewing robes.
in the winter we light fires. There's all kinds of minor rules about lighting fire, when to light, how to light. Now we have a rule, if you're in a room or a place where you're going to light the fire, you, if there's a senior monk present, you should always ask permission to light the fire. Something we probably overlook in daily life. But there's a meaning for that. It's about developing a sensitivity and awareness of living in a community with other people. Our behavior doesn't just affect ourselves, it affects other people. Sensitivity to the place, the time, who's around us whether we're going to influence someone else. So something very simple, just like asking permission or taking leave. Something you see it recurs over and over in the Vinaya, you know, asking to sit down, asking to leave the monastery, asking to light a fire. Not something that's encouraged in our modern society, might even be frowned upon as being weak or subservient, over-deferential. Well, why would the Buddha establish these minor rules? It's to help make us more aware, more mindful, more sensitive to our behavior, what we're saying, what we're doing, to establish good relations with others. It's the practice of the Brahmaviharas in daily life being aware and sensitive to the people around us. One could become foremost in being humble amongst other people or being respectful of others or considerate of others. Other rules are about cleaning and maintaining buildings, the things we use, our personal possessions and the possessions of the Sangha. And we could become foremost in cleaning, being clean and tidy, or caring for a kuti, always making sure we look after our kuti keeping the paths around swept and clean or the path from your kuti down to the sala always cleaning that, picking up the leaves or the branches come foremost in walking, meditation you know, walking in all situations or weathers all times of day and night not being put off by feelings of tiredness or cold wet weather or other distractions and learning to walk meditation at different times foremost in sitting different times being able to sit late at night early in the morning middle of the day 
on and on we can go. We can look at our own practice and see where we could really benefit. <coughs> Maybe something takes our interest or we just see it's a useful way to train ourselves to really see if we can improve our own effort and mindfulness, renunciation, or the practice of Brahma-viharas become foremost in upatarking or foremost in assisting elderly bhikkhus or foremost in assisting sick bhikkhus. Many, many areas we could develop some very skillful qualities of mind. This is something to think about on one of the foundations of our practice, just how we relate to the world around us on a daily basis and skillful ways to bring up wholesome states of mind, develop the Brahma-viharas, And practicing compassion for those who are suffering by seeing what we can do to ease their suffering. Foremost in the one who practices mudita, appreciation for others, always being happy, maybe just recognizing the good in others, seeing others doing their practice and taking joy in that. Some monks I know, they have the factors of samadhi arise just watching other bhikkhus sweep leaves, cleaning the monastery. Piti and sukha arises, just as if they were sitting meditation in a room on their own, just seeing other members of the community doing something good can bring up piti and sukha through the practice of mudita. equanimity, upeka, evenness of mind, mm. jobs that nobody else wants to do because it's too messy or unattractive, developing upeka towards unpleasant conditions, being willing to do something that nobody else wants to do or is hard to do, being equanimous and even-minded towards aspects of the routine that we do. There's some bits we like, some we don't. Equanimous to our own physical experiences, pleasure and pain. Not always seeking pleasure and to get things the way we want. Maybe we could be foremost and excel in renouncing our own personal attachment to pleasures, food and drink or the way we use our time. Foremost in putting up with things or people that we don't want to or wouldn't normally want to be putting up with. There's plenty of opportunity to be creative and excel in different areas just to see that all aspects of our life become part of the practice area to develop wholesome states and abandon. One monk I lived with once, he made just a very simple rule for a vasa, is I'm not going to ask 
for anything from anybody. Very simple, straightforward rule, but sometimes quite difficult to practice because obviously we need things, even living in the most simple, ascetic sort of conditions. We still use things, need to get by with requisites, food, and so on. But he wanted to see if he could do it, not ask for anything for three months. I only used soap when it was given out. Nobody knew he was keeping this rule, he hadn't made it public. And nobody gave out any soap, well, that's it, not much soap available. No special foods, medicines, special this, special that, just accept whatever's coming in the routine, in the requisites that are offered on a normal basis. He wanted to teach himself, he was inspired by the teaching the Buddha gave about how monks need to learn to be content, not to be always bothering lay people. There was the monk in the time of the Buddha who was bothered by a flock of birds making a raucous noise where he was meditating. So he went to the Buddha and asked, how can I deal with this flock of noisy birds disturbing my meditation? And he said, oh, every time a bird comes, ask it for a feather, ask from it for a feather. Soon there'll be no birds left. They'll get fed up with you asking. He said, this is like a bhikkhu who always asking for things. In the end, the lay people stay away from them. They get a reputation, oh, this is the bhikkhu who's always asking, never content. If you want to get rid of someone, just keep asking them for things. Sooner or later, they'll avoid you. And this monk, he was inspired by that, so he just wanted to practice not asking. Another one did practice not touching anything that didn't belong to him. Obviously, he might not include communal items or things like a broom to sweep a floor or something, but personal items, whether in the monastery belonging to other bhikkhus or visiting lay people. He just wanted to practice not touching anything that didn't belong to him, learning to be equanimous, even-minded, aloof, uninterested. Ajahn Chah used to complain in the early days at Wobbapong and take the monks into Ubon to eat in a bless, bless a person's house, eat in a house for a blessing. And some of the new monks who'd been in the forest for too long would just sit there staring at the possessions in that household, looking at what they've got, the furniture, the different items, staring to the point where everyone could see and would even make a joke about it. Some monks even go further, they actually touch things, pick them up, show an interest. So this monk, he just wanted to practice not touching anything that didn't belong to him. Just to teach himself to let go of that kind of attachment that might form into greed or desire for things that he didn't have.
or another bhikkhu I remember he made a determination not to complain because we love to complain complain about the food, the weather the monastic routine our kuti, our this, our that the teacher, the place they realize this is something a lot of negativity, negative mental states harboring in his mind coming out in complaints so he taught himself to not complain very hard practice maybe he became foremost in not complaining all of us are different so we have to look at where we might use the opportunity in avasa time retreat time to really study ourselves, get to know ourselves, what we might do to increase our efforts, develop more patience and endurance, let go of bad habits and so on. Where can we excel? Where can we bring up our efforts? And a lot of the practice is about going against our previously held habits, habits of thinking, habits of speaking, habits of doing things which aren't all good. Some are, some habits we can maintain and develop but other habits need to be changed. So you have to look at this and see what supports good practice. So the Vinaya helps, the monastic routines help, our own mindfulness helps as we become more aware of our own practice, our minds, our state of mind. We start to see what, what we need to do to improve. We need to find methods that can hold our attention, you know, meditation objects and techniques. And the one that's probably hardest of all is the one that we hear most about the practice of mindfulness of the body because it's just our nature not to practice mindfulness and wisdom directed to this body it's not our habit as human beings in the past as lay people maybe even as monks every time you look in a mirror you look at your body and if it looks good the way you like you feel good happy if it's not looking so good you feel down depressed and that's the same for everybody in this world all over the world that's how people are they look at themselves in a mirror and they like it and become happy or they don't like it and become angry or depressed over and over again through their lives they carry an image in their mind about their body, they look at their body, they think about it and they do all kinds of activities surrounding and to do with this body. But most of it is without mindfulness, it's just habits based on attachment, based on sensual desire, identification.
And when we come into the robes, we have the very first teaching. What we call Patikula Manasikara. You're wisely reflecting, going against the habit or the stream of our sensual desire. Pati means to go against. Normally our habit is to always look at our body with desire, with recognition and then identification, satisfaction, wanting it to look good, look a certain way. Now we've come into the robes, we're doing training in the opposite, which is totally against our previous habit and conditioning. So it takes effort. If you're going to go against the stream, then it's like walking upstream in a river or a stream. It takes effort, takes practice. A super sanya, a super. Again, against or non-beauty or unattractive or against beauty. reflection on the unattractiveness of the body. Whether it's the 32 parts or the aging of the body or even the body as a corpse or the four elements. This is going against the stream of our whole way of thinking. Obviously, like any other aspect of the practice, if you're going against the stream, you have to bring up effort and you have to manage that effort because it can be quite difficult over a period of time. Just like learning to keep rules, get up in the morning, practice this way, practice that way. There's many things that require our attention and our effort. And sometimes the effort is strong and sometimes weak. So we have to manage it, balance it. And particularly when it comes to contemplating the body. You know, sometimes we find we can do it and sometimes we can't. But to keep returning to it as a theme, little by little, as we learn to calm the mind, train the mind. When we feel more relaxed, more calm, then turn to go through it bit by bit, element by element, part by part. Start training and developing this new way of looking at the human body, and particularly this body that we identify as me, mine, myself. Maybe you can set up a time in your day just for body contemplation. Another way you can do it, and if you find it's too risky or too uncertain to wait until you're peaceful, you might say, well, this time of the day in my retreat is the time just to contemplate the body. Even though I don't particularly want to do it some days, I'm bored or fed up with it, I'll try and keep this one period of time aside for contemplating the body. 
learning to visualize it, look at the images of it, contemplate it, think about it, analyze it, separate it out into little pieces, break it down like you might break down a, a model of a car or an aeroplane or something, separate it out into its pieces. Visualize them, think about them, all these different parts. Become familiar with them as they are, the unattractiveness of them. Learn to see how the mind and the body are affecting each other all the time in, on a daily basis. Your main effect on our body is through food and drink. If we don't eat food, then that affects the body one way. We eat food, it affects another way. The type of food we eat, the amount of food we eat, affects the body. There's other kinds of food as well. Ahara, we have. Pasa, ahara, sense contact affects the body, how much sense contact we have and how stimulating it is, how extreme it is. What we see, hear, taste, smell, touch affects the body. You have a lot of sense contact, like when you're traveling or you visit home. It drains the body. Most meditators find, oh, it's quite a challenge to maintain mindfulness and maintain a meditation practice when traveling or visiting lay people. Obviously, we have our craving for sense contact, but see what it does to the body in terms of being a form of food for the body, the effect it has. It affects the body in in different ways. More extreme sense contact can bring up chemical changes, hormones come out, adrenaline comes out, different kinds of hormonal reactions, endorphins and so on. There's different kinds of stimulation we have here, the stimulation of listening to Dhamma that helps bring up mindfulness and wisdom might bring up some sense of calm, pity and sukha. It's one kind of food. And then you read a novel or look at a movie or talk about something very worldly. Different kind of stimulation, different kind of chemical reactions on the body, different kind of stimulation on the body. Even what we think is a form of food for the body and affects the body. What they call mano sanchetana ahara. Our different intentions, wholesome, unwholesome, affect the body. Peaceful states of mind, wholesome states of mind bring with them both a sense of mental well-being and then that sense of mental well-being flows into the body. Perhaps the most extreme is the 
states of samadhi is when our mind calms, the body becomes calm as well. The breathing becomes refined. The blood becomes fully oxygenated as it travels around the body is a very refreshing, revitalizing effect as we practice and develop the factors of so samadhi. The mental state affects the body. Similarly, when our mental state is lacking in mindfulness, becomes very agitated, worried, afraid, anxious, the stress of the mental state affects the body. We become shaky. When you have extreme fear, extreme anxiety, you shake. The body feels terrible. We get pains and aches and all kinds of reactions. Toxins come out in the blood. This is another form of food that affects the body. Similarly, the consciousness, vijnana ahara, affects our body. Something to be mindful of, the state of consciousness, whether it's wholesome, unwholesome, affects our body. The feeling that comes with consciousness, pleasant, unpleasant, neutral, affects the body. When you have extreme stress or anger or depression and for long periods of time, you know, the sense is that our consciousness is getting internally getting battered as well as physically we become drained and don't feel so comfortable in our body. Even our mind and consciousness internally seems to be drained and under pressure, under stress. The relationship between mind and body and food and body, physical food and body. And this is one practice that on a daily basis we can investigate, become more clear on. And you start to train yourself to be more aware what, what leads to what, what supports peaceful states of mind and a sense of well-being in the body. what reflections, what ways of using our mind, what activities. And ultimately turning to contemplate the body as impermanent, as dukkha, as not self. To see these qualities very clearly, very make them very apparent in your awareness, in your understanding. So that it just becomes second nature. We know this body is impermanent. Feelings based on the body, pleasure and painful, are impermanent. 
unsatisfactory. There's no lasting happiness in that which is impermanent. There's no permanent self in this body or the feelings based on the body. Train the mind to contemplate this, see this to the point where it becomes very, very ordinary, natural to understand this is the way the, this human body is. It's like this. It's aging. It does bring us pain, sometimes pleasure, sometimes pain. It's affected by the environment, by the food, by the environment, by the things around us. Little by little your mind is becoming clearer and clearer and brighter because of this reflection. And brings it in line with truth. you think about it, this is the kindest thing we can do for ourselves or for others. You come to understand the way, the nature of this body, using the Four Noble Truths as a reflection. Understand that the more we attach and identify with this body and the body of others, the more we suffer, the more they suffer, the more we have delusion in the world, competition, jealousy, rivalry, anger, confrontation, all based around the, this lack of clarity with the body. practicing for a while longer and then do our chanting. <laughs> 